Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to introduce you to a podcast we love. It's all about women rising up, called Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. This season, Lauren will introduce you to quote-unquote radical people who are transforming the systems as we know them, from legendary activists like Gloria Steinem to policymakers and tech entrepreneurs. You'll hear honest, powerful stories of how change gets made and come away with new ways of responding to problems the world throws at you. To hear how women rise up and get radical, search for Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, co-workers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. For episode three, I interviewed my former colleague and Businessweek editor-in-chief, Megan Murphy. Then, each of the women I interviewed picked someone from her life to talk to. So in episode seven, Megan talked to her fiancé, Hillary Rosen. Now, we're extending the interview chains one step further— It's Hillary's turn to pick someone from her life to bring into the conversation. Hi, this is Hillary Rosen, Managing Director at SKD Knickerbocker in Washington, D.C. And I am here with my partner, Anita Dunn, also a Managing Director of SKD Knickerbocker. Anita and I have been partners for... Nine years. Nine years. Nine years. Mm -hmm. Normally, we can finish each other's sentences, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to ask her questions and let her finish the whole sentence by herself because there's nobody in the world I respect more than Anita, and she has a fascinating career. Tell me, Anita, just let's do a few of the basics for our listeners. Where did you grow up, and what did you want to be when you were a young girl? Well, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area because my father— was a computer person who worked for IBM on the space program, and obviously they were here. My first thing I wanted to be was the first great female sportscaster. Oh, that would have been awesome. It would have been awesome. And then I wanted to be an OBGYN after that because I felt that there weren't enough women doing it and that male doctors just would never really quite get it. So I want to go a little bit into your history and how you got where you are today. You have been at SKDK, but importantly, you were the communications director in Barack Obama's White House, which was an amazing vaunted position. But let's go right into some meat, because 
The question I'm getting now more than any from young women is, there's a lot of people talking about how women should run for office, but I just want to work on a presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. How do I get to work on a presidential campaign? And nobody knows better than you, Anita. So for all those people out there who are interested, who feel motivated, who've gotten energized, let's say they want to go work full-time on a presidential campaign, but have never been in politics before. What should they do? Well, the first way to go work on a presidential campaign is to just start working for a presidential campaign. And that means going into that headquarters, your local office, anything you can access on weekends, at night, whenever you can be there. And so you start to get to know the people and you get to know the people on the payroll. And then you're simply so much better than everyone else that people are like, we should hire this person. So that's one way simply to go there. Don't go looking for a job. Don't ask permission. Just show up just and start working. Just show up and start working and, and just see what needs to be done. There are never enough people on a presidential campaign to do what needs to be done. The same advice applies to if you're close to somebody's national headquarters. I've worked on presidential campaigns more than one, where people literally just showed up at the headquarters from out of town, just got on a plane or got in their car, drove there and started volunteering and ended up being put on the payroll. Those are some ways. Another way is to try to access it through people you know. But for every job, paid job on a presidential campaign, there are probably 500 to 600 people who want to get that job. So if you're already doing the job and people get to know you, That is definitely one way to do it. Another way is to try to access it through people you already know. But just doing the work is probably the best road to it. That's really good advice. And of course, that's a financial investment. It's a time investment. It is. But if Mm -hmm. that's your passion. If that's what you want to do, it is a time investment. It's a financial investment. More to the point, Hillary, it's an emotional investment. Yeah. A presidential campaign is an emotional investment for people unlike anything they've ever done. And I'm hearing from so many women right now is, I just want to beat Donald Trump. I want to work on a campaign. I don't know. I don't even care who I work for or what I, I just want to beat Donald Trump. And so if you end up on a campaign that's a losing campaign or with a candidate that's going to drop out in eight months or doesn't catch fire in the debates, do you still get a career? Do the other campaigns, the winning campaigns look to the losing campaigns for talent or does it matter where you go to? First of all, I I am totally with everyone who just wants to beat Donald Trump. I I need to put myself in that camp. Almost everyone who goes to work for a presidential campaign, Hillary, is going to go work for a losing campaign. Right. Because only one of them wins. Right. Only one of them wins the nomination. And then there's no guarantee you're going to win the general election. So the reality is almost everyone listening to this will, if they're working for a campaign, is going to lose. So let's start there. The second thing is that presidential campaigns hiring concentric circles, and they keep hiring so that by July or August of 2020, anyone who has worked on a campaign and been reasonably competent is likely going to be employed. Now, they're not going to be in the headquarters. They're not going to be in the small room with the candidate, giving the candidate advice before debates. But if you're willing to go to a state, if you're willing to make the phone calls, to knock on the doors, to do the field organizing, to be up early in the morning till late at night, you will be working for the presidential nominee. That's so true. I love that. And maybe in some respects, because there are so many campaigns Mm -hmm. this year, there's so much more opportunity for people who've never done it. And experience might matter less. I think experience matters less. I also think that 
the new emphasis on field organizing and grassroots, which is incredibly important, matters more. If you look at the early hiring of these campaigns, it's been heavily oriented towards the field and less oriented towards headquarters, which is the opposite of the way campaigns used to be at this point. How do you see the current coverage today of these campaigns? As, a, as There's a lot of conversation around women and whether the women are being covered differently than the men, whether the fair-haired boys of Beto and Buttigieg are, are all of a sudden being glamorized in a way that the women aren't. You've worked on so many campaigns over the years. Does it feel like that's the case? I think it's certainly the case with um, Mayor Pete, who's an extremely attractive candidate, but who has not been held to anywhere near the same standards that almost any other candidate in this race has been held to so far. Generally, when you have a field this large, it is hard for news organizations to give people fair coverage. They certainly aren't going to give them equal coverage. If you look at the field and you look at just not even a content analysis, just a pure volume analysis, it's pretty striking how much more attention some of the bees have gotten than, I, I think the mall is bees, right? <laughs> Bernie, <laughs> whatever. But the, and the, the, soon the, Biden, in theory, maybe. The, well, the bees get a lot of attention and that there's been a lot of discussion about Elizabeth Warren, who is driving the issues agenda with really thoughtful, smart policies and a vision agenda. There's Senator Harris, Senator Gillibrand. These are people who are, you know, substantive people, Amy Klobuchar. They're substantive. They're thinking through why they want to be president, and they aren't getting the same. They have level records. Of coverage. They have records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Jenny. What's up? Hey, Shira. Not much. I'm just working away over here. That's so lovely. I'm curious, how have you used Skype recently? Well, as we grow under media network, increasingly we're having conversations with people all over the country. And in order to facilitate those conversations, we have to have a reliable tool to video chat with people from all different kinds of locations. So we use Skype. That's so lovely. What else does Skype do? Well, as you know, Shira... Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. Individuals and companies all over the world use Skype to connect with other people just the way that we're using it. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether they're one-on-one or with groups. You can also send instant messages and share files. So special thanks to Skype for their support of this season of Web of Women. I also think it's important to note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the ones that have happened on this show throughout the season, they don't necessarily agree with everything that's being said. All of the opinions that have been shared belong solely to the people who've expressed them. Let's get back to the show. Bye. Bye. So you came up in presidential politics and in politics generally when there weren't a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started. Your first White House job story is the best story. Well, I was um, a college student and a friend of mine had gotten an internship for the Office of Administration 
during the summer. This was the Carter administration where they had, uh, President Carter had pledged in 1976 when he ran that he was going to cut the Imperial White House staff because, of course, Nixon and the Imperial White House and the abuses of power. So, of course, Carter said, I'm going to cut the White House staff. But when you cut the White House staff or any staff in politics, you don't cut the people at the top. The worker bees tend to suffer. So they did not have enough people to answer the phones at the White House. And my friend called me and asked me if I wanted to answer phones at the White House for the White House chief of staff. And I thought, well, yeah, I do. I was interested in politics. I'd grown up in the Washington area where you go one of two ways. You're either really interested in politics or you flee from politics. (laughs) And I was not a fleer. I was a, I'm interested. My first visit to the White House, I had never been on a White House tour. I had never been to the White House. My first time I went to the White House was for an interview with Hamilton Jordan's confidential assistant. And you were working at CVS for money at the time. Or oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I was working at, I was behind the pharmacy counter at what was then People's Drug Store, now CVS. Right. Mm-hmm. And keep going with that story because wasn't there, didn't he one day say, well, you know, what do you mean you're not getting paid? So I had been there nine months. <laughs> and working I, for free. Working for free. Yes. I mean, they were very apologetic. They were like, there's no money. This actually, you know, it's very long hours. It's very stressful, all of which was true. But it was also being in the West Wing of the White House, down the hall from the Oval Office, with a front page to extraordinary history and learning more than I ever would have learned in school. But I was going to school and I was working. And about nine months in, I had discovered that there actually were interns who got paid. And I was thinking, hmm, I've been here for nine months. So one day I screwed up my courage. A friend of mine, Lori Lucy, said, go talk to Hamilton, go talk to Hamilton. And I screwed up my courage and I went into his office and I said, "Uh, Hamilton, did you know I'm not getting paid? And he was shocked by that. And so he said, I'm going to take care of this. But they didn't have any money. So I ended up being on the National Security Council staff (laughs) as my first job because that was the only place that had any money. But you kept working for him, even though oh, you were yes, on I was National still working. I was, I was, yes. You were on loan to you the chief of staff. I was on office. loan to the right. chief of staff. That's hysterical. And then you went from the White House to the Senate. I went from the White right. House to the campaign. I yeah. was lucky enough to go work for Jerry Rafshin, who produced the advertising. I had figured out after a year and a half at the White House that what I was really interested in was communications and communicating with voters, whether it was through the press or through the paid advertising. So I called Jerry and I said, Jerry, can I come work for you? I'd like to learn about what you do. And Jerry said, sure. So I went to work for Jerry Rafshin, who produced the advertising. I learned about television advertising, which was also, again, pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And then after Carter lost, I had no choice and I had to go back to school. Uh But then my next job was in the Senate working for Senator Robert Byrd, who was the minority leader And a boss of mine from Jerry's office had gotten the job as communications director for the Senate Democrats. And he asked me if I wanted to come work for him. And I did. And that started your press career? That started my press career. I was supposed to be 50% press assistant and 50% backup typist for the domestic policy staff. And were there any guys who were backup typists? Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. And it was really great because... The next year when my boss was leaving to become John Glenn's communications director for his presidential campaign, and I went in to give my notice, the director of the policy committee said, no, you can't do this. We've all come to depend on you. You're doing such a great job. And I said, Rob, when you hired me, I was a backup typist. 
So it was easy for me to leave and go do the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. So. And you never got hired as a typist again? I never got hired as a typist again, although I'm a very good typist. My mother in high school during typing class actually said to me, just get a D in this class so you pass, because if you learn to type, that's all anyone will want you to do. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting because my parents' view of it, I I did it in summer school, but they were like, one, you will need to learn to type. Right. And two, you know you can always earn a living. Right. And and because my mother had the sort of the opposite radical view. And Anita and I, for those of you who don't know, are about the same age. So Mm -hmm. um, it is fascinating the lessons we learned in those years. So there's a lot of conversation today also about how because there are so many presidential campaigns, there's more opportunities for women. It's not that I want you to tell the war stories about how you were the only woman in the room, but tell us a little bit about how you think women have changed the communication with voters, have changed candidates in this way. And is Obama a good example of that? When you joined the campaign, you instantly became the most senior woman on the team of a kind of a boys club. Almost every campaign staff at the presidential level is still primarily a boys club. And women are being hired in greater numbers and in more senior roles. And I think 2020 is better than any cycle that's come before. And there are more jobs and more opportunities. But it's still very much a boys club, whether it's consultants, whether it is in the campaign manager class. You know, when we finish this and we look at who the 2020 campaign managers were, the vast majority of them will have been men. And there will still be a small circle of people around most of the candidates. And that circle will be comprised primarily of men. Women had their first big breakthrough in the Democratic Party when it came to management jobs and communications jobs after the 1986 Senate races, because a lot of long-shot Senate candidates were elected to the Senate that year, and women had run those races. They had been the finance directors, they'd been the managers, they'd been the comms directors, and they moved into the Senate with these candidates who had been elected to the Senate. So that was the first real class of operatives. Then you had another class of operatives post-1992 when we had our first year of the women, and many of those women also had used women, which was great. But you still had a relatively small number of people doing this. I think that candidates are increasingly recognizing that the importance of having women at the table, women are the majority vote in the Democratic Party and in the United States of America, and small cues that men don't pick up on are important to women. We make some judgments about candidates based on small things that if you don't have a woman at the table, you're going to miss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know that Actually, people realize this, that women, I think, are 53% of the Democratic Party voters. They are. Mm -hmm. 53 or 54. And almost 52% of the general election voter. So even in a general election, women are majority voters. And if you look at, for instance, um, Beto O'Rourke's announcement video, in which his wife sat there like a potted palm the entire time. And any woman... And got comments on it. A lot of comments on it. And any woman who had looked at that thing would have said, you can't do that. Right. You you can't do that. If she doesn't have a role in this, then don't have her in that, right? Right. Yeah. And the, obviously, extra sensitivity around women and how issues of discrimination and harassment and all those things are 
are handled, it's amazing still how many men have those conversations without women in the room. Yes. How do you think women voters are going to end up responding in this election, though, as we know, depressingly, white women voters over the last several cycles have given a majority of votes to the Republican candidate. Do you think that changes now? Do you think there's a chance for it to change after this and after November? We saw the beginning of a change in 2018 in the midterm elections when some of the suburban women voters voted Democratic. And it was as much a vote against the Republicans and against the Trump Republicans as it was a proactive Democratic vote. Although I also think that the diversity of our candidates and the number of women we had running was helpful to that. But women don't monolithically vote for women, or we'd have a lot more women. Right. Or Hillary Clinton would be president. Who did get right. six actually, million more votes. She, she did actually win. <laughs> she did actually win the popular vote. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I that Mayor Pete said yesterday, which people really don't talk about much, he said, we talk about democracy, but in my lifetime, we've actually had the Electoral College take over twice in presidential campaigns over the will of the people, which would discourage people from engaging. On the other hand, because there was a time not so long ago when Democrats actually liked the Electoral College better than the popular vote. It was not so long ago that California was a Republican state, that New Jersey was a Republican state, that New York was a Republican swing state, and that arguably the Electoral College benefited Democrats more than it benefited Republicans. I think that the value of forcing candidates to campaign in smaller states and not just go for the big population centers is important. So I'm not sure exactly how you fix this. I would like to start with fixing the Senate first. Right. Because that is truly the undemocratic institution left in our government. Yeah, that's a good point. Of course, that's the constitutional provision. As is the Electoral College. Right. Okay, any final words of wisdom to women who want to be in politics? And is this our time? I think it is our time, but I think our time isn't a finite thing here. You know, I always laughed about 1992 being the year of the woman because men had had every other year before. And as it turned out, (laughs) they had every other year after. (laughs) It was like, oh, goody, we get one year out of this entire (laughs) democracy, right? (laughs) And so when people say it's our time, I think, oh, great. We get one time now. I think that you are seeing a sea change, and you're seeing it both in terms of education and women going to college at greater rates than men, graduating, graduate school. I think that you're seeing it in terms of businesses truly recognizing that retention of women in the workforce is a challenge, not just a, oh, well, we can't keep them, but it's Mm -hmm. something they need to figure out. And I think that in politics, the number of women who want to participate and who are running at every level means that the barriers really are going to continue to break down, although they will be there for a while. Yeah. Wise words from the great Anita Dunn. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Well, thank you for asking me great questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. Next episode starts the third link in the fourth and final interview chain. In episode four, I interviewed a brand new connection, Dinora Gattaccio. 
Then Denora interviewed her friend Glinda Carr. Now it's Glinda's turn. I can't believe it's already that time, but next week is the finale of this season of The Web. It's been so exciting to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, please email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.